Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and chapter 28. The 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. We'll read these wonderful words of the Lord from verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy beasts, the increase of thy cattle, and the young of thy flock. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy kneading trough. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord will cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thee. They shall come out against thee one way and shall flee before thee seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon thee in thy bonds, and in all that thou puttest thy hand unto. And he will bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord will establish thee for a holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord will make thee plenteous for good in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy ground in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord will open unto thee his good treasure, the, the, the heavens, to give the rain of thy land <clears throat> in its season and to bless all the work of thy hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord will make thee the head, and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If thou shalt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and shalt not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. 22, Luke and chapter 22 and verse 29 and 30, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, even as my Father appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and ye shall sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And remember the New English Bible um, version of this is, I 
now vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. And in also Luke and chapter 12 and verse uh, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, now this evening we come uh, at least for a while to the last of these studies on this whole matter of reigning with Christ and kingship or overcoming, however you like to look at it. I wish we'd had time to be able to look at certain other lives. I would like very much to have uh, spent an evening on uh, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel because they have so much to teach us. And of course another evening should have been spent on Elijah because he has very, very much to say to us about a listening ear which is one of the most important elements in overcoming. But we have to leave all that for now. What I want this evening is to speak about the Lord Jesus as the overcomer. The Lord Jesus is the overcomer. And if you will take your um, Bible, I want you to look at some very wonderful scriptures in this connection. You see, we are to overcome as he has overcome. In fact, the key to all overcoming, both its nature and its power, is in that one fact that Jesus is the overcomer. And it is in our relationship to him and our experience of him, being conformed to his image, really walking in the way that he walked, that we shall know him overcoming in us again. Now, if you take the, your Bible, first of all, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father, in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. And then John 16, John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye may have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
Now, I think that's wonderful, the connection there of being of good cheer and his overcoming the world. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. I wonder whether you think about it for a while. Why should that cheer us up? In one way, it might even depress us. He's overcome, we haven't. He's at the right hand of God the Father. We're down here on earth at the mercy of the enemy, seemingly. Why did the Lord say, in the world you shall have tribulation? In other words, he's not uh, given us a rosy picture. In me, he said, you ha shall have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, there is a connection between his overcoming the world and our overcoming. Just as it says in Acts 14 that through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom. Or to put it another way, through much tribulation we're prepared for kingship. We enter into our place as those who can reign with Christ. So we have tribulation in the world and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. And then I want you to look at um, 1 John and chapter 5. The first letter of John, chapter 5. And um, verse 5. And who is he that overcometh the world but... He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now here we have the connection again. Who is he that overcometh the world? It began off in verse 4 by saying, Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, our overcoming is connected with a living relationship to the Lord Jesus, a living appreciation of the Lord Jesus, a living recognition of the Lord Jesus. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Then look at Romans and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him that loved us. Not just in all these things we are conquerors, or in all these things we get through, <laughs> but in all these things we are more than conquerors. The New American Standard Bible puts it like this. No, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Overwhelmingly conquer. How do we overwhelmingly conquer? Through him that loved us. All overcoming is through Jesus the overcomer. It is connected with his person and with his overcoming. Then again, look at 2 Corinthians and chapter 2 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. But thanks be unto God who always leadeth us in triumph in Christ and maketh manifest through us the savour of his knowledge in every place. For we are a sweet savour of Christ unto God in them that are saved 
and in them that perish. Now just mark those words, but thanks be unto God who always leadeth us in the train, always leadeth us in triumph in Christ. Always leadeth us in triumph in Christ. The connection of triumph is in to be in Christ. Oh, to see it. To see it. This is the way Conibert, Conibert translated that. Some of you will know this lovely rendering of these words. But thanks be to God who leads me on from place to place in the train of his triumph to celebrate his victory over the enemies of Christ. And by me sends forth the knowledge of him a steam of fragrant incense throughout the world, for Christ's is the fragrance. That puts it in a nutshell. You see, Paul is borrowing a picture from those great triumphant Roman generals who went back to Rome and in their train they took all their captives all the kings, all the nobles, all the big people, all had to trail behind them in their great procession of victory. And uh, he says, that's what's happened to us. We're in the train of Christ's triumph. It's Christ's triumph. We are in the train of his triumph. We're in his triumphal procession. He is the overcomer, and we overcome because of his overcoming. All these things are very wonderful once we begin to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're so used to sometimes little phrases, they just run off us like water off a duck's back. But thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, when, when we begin to see this, it seems to me so very, very wonderful. The point is simply this. If we are to come to the throne, if we are to reign with Christ in eternity, we must follow him in the path that he trod to the throne. There is no other way to the throne of God. And there are no shortcuts. It is as simple as that. Jesus put it in so many words. He that overcometh, well, I grant to sit down with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. How did the Lord Jesus come to the throne of his Father? That is the way we have to tread. If we would sit down with the Lord Jesus in his throne, we must understand how he came to the Father's throne. John chapter 12 and verse um, 26 puts this again in very 
clear language. John chapter 12, verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honor. Now, this is what the Lord Jesus said before these words. If any man serve me, let him follow me. He's got to go the same way. There's no escaping. There's no bypasses. There are no shortcuts. If you want to go to the place where the Lord Jesus is in the Father's throne, you have got to follow the path that he trod to that throne. And Jesus put it in the two verses before like this, Verily, verily I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life loseth it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. We'll say something more about that in a moment. All I want to underline just now is that we've got to go the same way. That's the way Jesus went. He lost his life. He hated his life and kept it unto life eternal. He was prepared to lay down his life for the Father and for our salvation, our redemption. We have got to follow the same way because there is no possibility of fruit and no possibility of a harvest unless we can fall into the ground and die. That is our problem. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Look at 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 6. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him, that is in Christ, ought himself, also to walk, even as he walked. What does it mean to abide in Christ? The Lord Jesus was at great pains to speak to us again and again in the last moments of his earthly life about abiding in him. What does it mean? It means that if we abide in him to change the figure, we are to walk as he walked. Follow in the path that he trod. Look at 1 Peter and chapter 2 and verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Moreover, Christ had to overcome what we have to overcome. We sometimes forget that. What do you and I have to overcome? Well, to put it in a phrase that sometimes gets a bit hackneyed, we have to overcome the world, the devil, and the flesh. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus had to overcome. 
nothing less and nothing more. The world, the devil, and the flesh. John 16, verse 33, we've already read it. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What did the Lord Jesus mean by the world? Did he just mean the natural creation? Of course not. We were meant to have dominion over the natural creation. And we've lost it very largely. It's by the sweat of our brow now, we just keep our heads above water. But it was far more than that that the Lord meant when he said, I've overcome the world. He meant that whole world order, that world order of inverted values, that world order that puts all the emphasis on the transient and no, no emphasis upon the eternal, that somehow or other believes that the way to the throne is always to push others down, always to be forceful, always, as it were, to sort of grab things, grasp things, fight for things. That's the world. Jealousy, rivalry, hatred, malice, all those things that belong to the world. But not only that, there are many good things about this world order too. Things that can just as easily unseat us just because they are beautiful and seemingly noble and have great ideal. We don't look to whether they have foundations. We only see what lies. Jesus overcame the world. He overcame the devil. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, we read these wonderful words of our Lord Jesus again. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And how was he cast out? He was cast out when Jesus was crucified to the tree. So, we have the second thing. Jesus overcame. By dying, he brought to naught him that has the power of death and delivered them who all through life are subject to bondage through fear of death. And then we find another. Now, perhaps your problem is how he overcame the flesh. Because we say, oh, but there was no sin in his flesh. He didn't have um, the kind of flesh that we have. But the Lord Jesus also overcame the flesh. You see, we make a great mistake if we only think of sin in our flesh. There is a self-life which has to be overcome. And that's one of the things we're going to look at this evening. But just two scriptures that may put this at least into perspective. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So evidently the Lord Jesus knew something about the temptations that came along the line of his self-life. Look again at chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. 
So although he was without sin, he faced a testing such as none of us will ever face and overcame it all. Now in us, he will overcome again. He will overcome the world in us, in me, in you. He will overcome the devil in me, in you. He will overcome the flesh in me, in you. There are a number of keys to Christ's overcoming that are of tremendous help to us. I'm only going to give you four, if the Lord helps me, this evening. Four keys to the overcoming of Christ. How Christ overcame. But I say that these four keys are of tremendous uh, help and value to us. They're essential if we're going to know what it is to be overcomers. And the first key is this. Union with the Father. Union with the Father. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? I wonder whether you have... Um, have, whether you've ever noticed what the Lord Jesus said as recorded in John's Gospel. This matter is emphasized in that Gospel that the Lord Jesus spoke everything out of union with his Father, worked everything out of union with his Father, willed everything out of union with his Father. Always. His words, his actions were out from union with his Father. Christ would do nothing from himself. Now think, think. The perfect Son of God, the Son of Man, who was holy, blameless, separate from sinners, without sin, and yet he said again and again, I do nothing from myself. Why can't he do anything from himself? There's no sin to mar. There's nothing to spoil. There's no, there's, there's no iniquity. No transgression in him. Why doesn't he just spontaneously do everything out from himself? No. Jesus, I do nothing from myself. Don't always hide behind sin. even if you and I had never sinned, and there's not one of us in that category, but even if you and I had never sinned, we could still spoil everything from just simply doing things out from ourselves. The key to overcoming in Jesus, to his overcoming, was union with his father. Now, let's just have a look at some wonderful scriptures. Even as a sinless man, even as the one who was absolutely holy, everything had to be out from the father. Let's look at John's gospel. Go to chapter 5 and verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Verily, Verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father doing. For what things soever he doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner. Now, isn't that an incredible statement? Listen again. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father doing. 
For what things soever he doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner. In other words, remember one of our first great lessons of kingship from the life of Abraham? Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. Everything originating in God. If it is to go through to the kingdom, if it is, as it were, to inherit the promises, it's got to begin with God. It's interesting. Take a few more scriptures. Same chapter, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Here again what the Lord said. I can of myself do nothing. Why can he? Because he could do a lot. But why does he say, I cannot myself do it? Because he says, he only seeks the will of him that sent him. Therefore, because he wants to do the will of the Father, he will do nothing out from himself. Now, don't get the idea that Jesus was a quietist, that somehow or other he was a kind of, um, oh, I was going to say pacifist, but you know what I mean, um, a, a passive uh, uh, doing doer of nothing, you know as well as I do that the Lord Jesus spent his whole time doing good, healing the sick, casting out the demons, cleansing the lepers, raised the dead on a number of occasions, all the time, everywhere, it was constant movement, constant movement, constant movement, but how does the Lord Jesus describe the whole thing? He said, I cannot myself do nothing. I seek only the will of him that sent me. Look again at um, uh, chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Jesus therefore said, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. He hath not left me alone, for I do always the things that are pleasing unto him. Wonderful words. Overcome. I seek the will of him that sent me. Overcome. I do always those things which are pleasing unto him. Overcoming. Uh, look at chapter 12. Verse 49. John chapter 12. Verse 49. For I spake not from myself, but the Father that sent me. He hath given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. In other words, when the Lord Jesus spoke, it was out from union with his Father. Don't think for a moment that it was some kind of legal bondage the Lord Jesus was in, some kind of inhibition all the time, nervous as to whether he could speak or couldn't speak. It was spontaneous, but it was from union, union with the Father, so that somehow he spoke the words of his Father, did the will of his Father. Look at John chapter 14, verse 10. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say unto you, I speak not from myself. But the Father, listen, 
abiding in me doeth his works. What an unfolding revelation. What an unfolding revelation about this whole matter of union with God. I can do nothing of myself. Ends with the Father abiding in me doeth his works. Child of God. If only we knew something like this. If we only knew what it was not to be able to do anything from ourselves. But positively, Christ in us, doing his works. That is overcoming. Well, now you see, you begin to realize that to overcome then is... Uh, 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 just tremendous when you see it's really a matter of union with the Father. It's as simple as that. That's why the Lord Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. It's so simple. <laughs> now, have you, ever, have you ever really looked at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? And really, when you look at it, have you ever really honestly asked yourself, or perhaps you've been too afraid, perhaps you felt it was almost blasphemous to question the word of God. But you know, really, because we're so used to these things, we don't question what some of those things the Lord, the devil tempted the Lord Jesus to do didn't seem to be so terrible, did they? I mean, what's so bad about turning a stone into a bit of bread? Especially if it could be given to somebody. I don't see what all the fuss was about. The devil came to the Lord Jesus and said, Look, turn this stone into bread. Well, would, it, would the whole of heaven collapse if Jesus said, Stone, be bread. And then when it was bread, he could have said to someone, Take that to so-and-so, they're hungry. Would it really so terrible if Jesus had flung himself off the pinnacle of the temple? I mean, he did another, enough other things that were exciting. Raising up Lazarus from the dead must have been a tremendous excitement. Especially when he was four days dead. And in weather like this. <laughs> Think of the excitement. I mean, it, it caused such a fuss in the Sanhedrin that they actually met together to see what they could do to Lazarus, to put him back into the tomb. They were so bothered about him. Never questioned the miracle. It was the evidence that they were worried about. I mean, the Lord Jesus did some amazing things. What then would be so terrible about throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple? You see, of course, we all know that when the devil said, bow down to me and I will give you, but that was the last one. That's where the colors of the enemy came out into the open. What was the enemy trying to do? He was trying to get Jesus to do things out from himself. So simple. You see, Satan knew very well that the only way Jesus, as the Son of Man, could overcome was to keep in union with his Father. If once he could get him to turn stone into bread for good purposes, but from himself, he got him. If he could get him a shortcut to recognition, throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. By the way, the pinnacle of the temple was over the most crowded part of the city. 
Not so today. When you look over the pinnacle of the temple, there doesn't seem to be anything there. So people think, well, what's so marvelous about this? Who would have, a few people going by on the donkey would have seen him? But in those days, the really crowded part of the poorer part of the city, which was congested, was all under those walls. Peter cast himself in the most tremendous sight as angels carried him down. Shortcut to recognition. You know, many of us get caught on this thing. Oh, in the service of God, we get caught on doing things that are good. And we get into a tremendous routine of activity, of doing things which are good, turning bread, stones into bread. And we're not. It's not out of union with the Father. It's so simple. Therefore, we don't overcome. We sometimes get in shortcuts. I know people who will do all kinds of things, you know, try and help things along, get them off the ground a bit, sort of really get things sort of going, you know, give it a little bit of impetus and so on. So it's really a sort of jumping off the pinnacle, trying to get that shortcut to popular recognition. Of course, when the enemy said to him thirdly, look here, bow down. Just once. I don't want you to, to do it forever. Just once. If you bow down once and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus never questioned the fact that the kingdoms of the world were under the authority of Satan. And it could have been another shortcut. Well, now you begin, I think, to understand something about this union with the Father, do you? See, that's what the enemy is doing to you, to you and me all the time. Jesus said, abide in me, that's all. There's no way to overcoming except through dependence upon Christ, union with Christ. As the Lord Jesus acted out from union with the Father, so we act out of union with him. Do you understand? Everything must be of God. Or, as we say, everything must be of Christ. Now, do you begin to find some other scriptures that are well known to you, taking on perhaps a deeper meaning? 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. Wherefore, if any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, and all things are of God. There's the key. Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. Union with Christ. Doing everything out of union with Christ. If, you, if the Lord Jesus came to the throne by doing everything out of union with his Father, we can only come to Christ's throne by doing everything out of union with Christ. Simple, but oh so profound. And then you begin to think of other scriptures well known. Philippians 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ. Or Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, Ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. 
Or again, listen to these words, so well known, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life which I now live, I live by the faith, of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, out of union with him. I think of John 7, verse 37 and 38. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me from within him shall flow out rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit. Rivers of living water. Where do they come from? They come from Christ within. They're not something in yourself. They're something in Christ. He is the well springing up unto life eternal that comes into us by the Spirit of God. You see, this whole matter is really tremendous when we begin to see it now in terms of abiding. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Verse 5 and 7. John 15, verse 5. And verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. So neither can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same beareth much fruit, for apart from me ye can do nothing. But my dear friend, we can do an awful lot. <laughs> we can do an awful lot without Christ. Many of us have learnt it through bitter experience. We can preach without him. We can, we can pray without him. We can work without him. We can witness without him. We can have meetings without him. We can go to all the activity without him. We can do a tremendous amount without him. What did he mean? He meant apart from me, there's nothing that goes through into the kingdom. You can spend your whole time in a round of activity, but unless it's out of union, it doesn't reach the throne. It doesn't come into the kingdom. Union with the What a lesson to learn. Again, in the same chapter, from verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. Even as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Interesting. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments, that's the will of God, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that your joy may be, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another even as I have loved you. Abiding in me, oh, the lesson, no wonder the Lord Jesus, when it came to the last moments of his earthly life, put all the emphasis on this little sentence, abide in me and I in you. He said it again, and again, and again, and again. 
That's the secret. It's the secret to victory. It's the secret to reigning with Christ here and now. It is the secret to reigning with Christ in eternity to come. It is the secret to overcoming. We must learn, therefore, to abide in him. We must learn to do his will. What wonderful words. I always get so moved by these little words in 1 John and chapter 2 um, and verse 17. I don't know, I don't know why it is, but it, they always move me. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I think those are the most wonderful words. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So simple. What is the will of God for your life? Maybe you've got some issue. He's saying something to you. And the battle over it. Perhaps you had years of battle over it. So simple. Just to do it and you will abide forever. Overcoming. Just do the will of God in the simplest matters, and it will lead you to the greatest consequences. So simple. People get all tied up on huge matters, and all God is saying to them is, do this. You do it, you abide forever. Something goes into the kingdom. It's the way. Oh, to learn this lesson, I've always thought the most wonderful thing was when C.T. Studd lay dying and with his asthma and everything else and his gallstones and I don't know what else he had wrong with him at the final end, he could only gasp a little and they asked him whether he had anything to say. He said, I can only say this, that of all the Lord has ever asked me to do, I have done every single thing. And I think that is the most wonderful way to end one's life. Whosoever doeth the will of God abideth. Well, that's an overcomer. God doesn't bother you about the things he didn't ask you to do. <laughs> My dear friend, don't think God's going to hold you responsible for the millions in China if he didn't call you to China. But I'll tell you something. If he spoke to you about speaking to your neighbor, across the road, and you didn't. He does hold you responsible. We get all het up about something on the other side of the globe or some great tragedy that's taking place in some company of believers. It's not wrong to get burdened, but really what God is simply saying to us is, now don't you bother about that, it's my business. I haven't called you to that. I've told you to do this and this and this. You do it. And if you do it, you will come into great blessing. And then I think another matter in this matter is not only that we abide in him and do his will, but also that we walk in a four prepared works. That's a mouthful. Ephesians and chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God are for prepared that we should walk in them. Oh, you must be good Calvinists in this matter. You really must. God has worked. He has a for prepared. The trouble with a lot of us, if not all of us, is that we're all the time doing works of our own making. They're not his works. 
They're our works. They're good Christian works. They're sometimes needful works. But they're not works afore prepared that we should walk in them. If you want to overcome, you must stay in the works afore prepared. Oh, what a discipline it is for us who are in the service of God in any measure to know this. When we're called upon this side, that side, the other side, what should we do? We can get into a spiral of activity. We can just simply here, call here, call there, need here, need there. If you don't come, oh. And so we get into a spiral of activity. I say it to myself. Before we know where we are, we're doing all kind of good works, but not afore prepared that we should walk in them. Therefore, they don't go into the kingdom. That's why this has to be a way of faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Union with Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Now, isn't that an extraordinary statement? Arminian and Calvinist in one sentence. Work out your own salvation. Some say, hallelujah. Yes, I always did feel that. <laughs> For... It is God that worketh in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Keep in Christ. Keep in union with Christ. And you can work out your salvation. Practically, work it out. Make it yours. Appropriate it. Experience it. Enter into it. And then you will find that as you stay in union with Christ, it is God who is in you, working both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Now there's another element in this matter of Christ's overcoming, and it is not only that he did everything in union with the Father, but it is that he laid his life down. Christ overcame by laying down his life. He overcame by letting go of his life, by losing it. John chapter 10 and verse 10, 11 and verse 17, the Lord Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore doth the Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. And then, of course, those wonderful words in Philippians and chapter 2, part of which we sang together this evening, where it says, in verse 5, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man. 
he humbled himself, becoming obedient, even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A life laid down. That was the secret of the Lord Jesus overcoming. We see it not just in Calvary. You make a great mistake if you think that the only time Jesus laid down his life was at Calvary. That was the supreme expression of it. As if the whole matter was condensed finally into that one supreme sacrifice of himself for for our sin. But Bethlehem was the beginning. Somewhere in eternity, before times eternal, when the Father said, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The Son said, Here am I. Send me. And so that messianic psalm, Psalm 40 says, I come to do thy will. I delight to do thy will, O God. I am come. Bethlehem was the beginning of it. There would have been no incarnation unless the Lord Jesus had laid down his life. We say, we put it, of course, in one of our lovely hymns by Wesley, he laid his glory by. He emptied himself of all but man. Remember? But, But love, sorry, yes. But love. I don't know how far we can go that, but that's how Wesley put it, poetically. And we have it again in the River Jordan. When Jesus came to the River Jordan, I do not believe there was a single encouragement for, from heaven for him. God left him to himself so that he could face that whole issue as to whether after 30 years of life in which he had not sinned, in which he had been perfectly holy, in which he had met all kinds of problems and trials and overcome them, now he came to the last three years, the three years of his public ministry, which was going to end in the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Those waters of baptism, they weren't because Jesus needed to wash away sin, they weren't because he just wanted to give us an example that we should be baptized. That's a very weak thing. Of course it was an example, but that is very weak if that's the only reason for it. Why did Jesus get baptized? He said to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because those waters of baptism symbolized the death of the cross. And three years before Jesus ever came to the death of the cross, he said, Father, I'm ready to go to the cross and lay down his life again. And in that moment that he laid down his life, the heavens opened, and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and settled upon him. Now John the Baptist had said that he whom he saw the Holy Spirit coming upon would be the Messiah. And there's no doubt in my mind that when John the Baptist saw the dove, he immediately knew. 
Why? Because some people say that the dove was a symbol of the mildness of the Holy Spirit, the meekness of the Holy Spirit, the gentleness of Christ, the humility of Christ. I, I know doves are, are symbols of that, but to me that is not the symbolism. The symbolism of that dove was that if you were a rich person, you bought a bullock for your sin offering. And if you were middle class, you bought a ram. But if you belong to the vast working class, the peasants of the land, of whom the great majority belonged, you bought two turtle doves. And the moment John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove, he said, that's it, the sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who beareth away the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit was coming upon Jesus to enable him to lay down his life every day for three years. And finally, in a supreme sacrifice for sin, a life laid down. When you come to the transfiguration, you've got the same thing again. Jesus, when he was transfigured in glory, wasn't transfigured um, as um, a spotlight of glory from heaven. That's how often we imagine him, him standing there and the, and the two disciples there and, and suddenly a spotlight of glory came down from heaven and shone upon him all around him. It doesn't say that. It <laughs> says that something was switched on inside of him so that his whole flesh was transfigured so that his clothes glistered as no bleacher could ever make them white. It was a glory that came from inside of him and it was because Adam fell short of the glory of God and the second Adam, the last Adam, he came into the glory. At that point, Jesus could have stepped into the throne, onto the throne, into the kingdom, and said, Father, I claim it. I claim it. But he turned round and went down, and in a week or two, he was dead. That's why the voice of God was heard, Behold, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Gethsemane was the same thing again. You remember how every pressure in hell came upon Jesus in that moment so that he sweat great drops as of blood, which means that the most tremendous mental and emotional pressure was put upon the Lord Jesus. We don't know those things, those hideous and horrifying visions and pictures, apparitions that the devil brought before the Lord Jesus. I have no doubt that it was to do with the cost of our salvation, as if the devil was saying to once you die, once you die, it will be permanent. What guarantee have you got that once you have borne sin, once it's entered into you, once you have taken it upon yourself, you will not be cast off forever, alienated forever? We don't know exactly what it is that came before the Lord Jesus, but this we know that an angel had to strengthen him before the, the most terrible or part of the ordeal, not at the end of it. An angel came from heaven and strengthened him and ministered to him so that he could go through it. The whole battle was won with these words, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Union with the Father. A life laid down. And Jesus was the only one who had peace. When Judas came with that great armed rabble plus the temple guards, the whole lot of them panicked, but not Jesus. 
When Peter took a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus's ear, Jesus touched it and said, don't do that. And healed him. And then, of course, Calvary. Now, we say all this, why? Because it is when Jesus went down into death, God exalted him far above all. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name. Now, if we would come to the throne, then we must also lay down our lives. There is no other way to overcome. Don't think that you can come to the throne, that you can overcome by holding on to your life. If you think you can, I want to tell you something. You are in danger of deception. If you hold on to your life, it will effectively divorce you from the throne of Christ. You won't lose your salvation, but you will not come to the throne. For Jesus said that we must fall into the ground and die. Or again, in the Apostle John, put it in 1 John and chapter 3 and verse 16, which I always think is the great corresponding verse to John 3:16. 1 John and 3 and verse 16, Hereby know we love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, my dear child of God, there's no compulsion in this matter. No compulsion at all. We ought also to lay down our lives. See, God doesn't want people on the throne because they have to be there. <laughs> Do you think that God wants a whole lot of Christians all draped around on thrones throughout the universe because they really didn't want to get there, but finally they got there? You're mistaken. Just like the Lord Jesus said that he would do the will of the Father, I delight to do thy will, and so came into this world. So you and I have to, of our own will, will to do the will of God. God will never push anyone into this matter of coming to the throne. Well, I must just pass on otherwise, really. Um, we'll never finish this evening. The principle is this. We lose our lives to find our lives. Don't forget it. We lose our lives to find our lives. Have you found your life? Many Christians come to me and say, I found something missing, something missing. Of course, they haven't found their life. They've got plenty of experiences. They rush off here and rush off there and get this and get that. It's good. But there's always something missing. You'll never find your life unto life eternal till you've lost it. We die that we might know the power of his resurrection. No other way. You want to know the power of his resurrection? Then you must die. We fall into the ground and die that there might be a harvest. No other way. We humble ourselves and God exalts us. We make ourselves of no reputation and God gives us 
an eternally known name. I could give you example after example of that. John Wesley's name will remain to the end of eternity. And in his day was the offscouring. George Fox, his name will be alive as long as there's the kingdom of God. It was the offscouring in his day. You make yourself of no reputation, God will give you an eternally known name. We are broken that others might be blessed. We deny ourselves and discover the fullness of God. We take up the cross and he brings us to the throne of his glory. Until we are prepared to lay down our lives, we never know the real nature of our old man, of our talents, of our gifts, of our personality. Isn't it an amazing thing after that tremendous encounter with Moses and Moses said, well, well, if I go, Lord, will they really believe me? And he said to now, listen, what's that in your hand? And Moses said, it's a rod. He said, throw it down. He threw it down. And when he threw it down, it became a poisonous viper. Then God said to him, take it up by the tail. Now, anyone who knows anything about snakes, and I have no doubt you all know a lot about it, um, you have never, never take up a viper by its tail. Now, do remember that. <laughs> never take a viper up by its tail. Always by just behind the head. Uh, you may, I may save your life if you listen to me carefully on this thing. But you know what God said to Moses? Take it up by his tail. Now, Moses had been 40 years in the desert. He knew very well that was the stupidest, silliest thing, the dumbest thing that could have ever been said to him. You don't take a poisonous viper up by his tail. It curls and stings you. There's no Magadavida Dom, you know, no Red Cross out there. A rush to his aid, give him a sort of antidote. Knew very well he'd be dead within moments. And a painful, unhappy death. But what was God doing? That rod was the rod of authority. That was the rod that Moses was to lift up and the sea was to part into two. That was the rod that he was to touch the rock and water flowed out of it. That was the rod again and again and again that God used. How then could it have been a poisonous viper? Only when he let it go did he find the poison of a self-life in it. Dear child of God, you are never safe till you have let go of any ministry you have or anything you have of any kind. When you hold on to it, you're not even aware that there's a poisonous viper lurking there. But when you throw it down, suddenly the truth becomes apparent. There is the poison of a self-life in it. then you must take it up again. Because once you've seen what your, what's in, what your motives are, and what are interwoven with you, oh my, you have such a bad time, then God says, take it by the tail. Go on, take it by the tail. You've got to take that viper by the tail in faith. Then you've got a rod of authority. He said, see your hand, Put it in your bosom, on your heart, 
Moses said yes. Take it out. And it was leprous. White as snow. Emotions. Hand. Action. Oh, you see, we don't realize these things, do we? It's only when you lay down a life, you're safe. You can be in full-time service. You can have a real ministry. But until you've let go, you are not saved. The cross is the only way to the throne, to reigning with Christ, to overcoming. Now, a third thing, I will only touch on it, perhaps another occasion I'll say more about it, and that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Christ was born of the Spirit. He was indwelt by the Spirit. He knew the fruit of the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. He manifested the gifts of the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, he fulfilled the work of our salvation. I can give you a whole lot of scriptures on that. Luke 1 and verse 35. Remember, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. That's how he was born. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 and 22 says how the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was baptized. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went forth to his public ministry. Acts chapter 4 and verse 27 says, Thy holy servant whom thou didst anoint. Anoint? When did God anoint Jesus? That is a very good question. When did God anoint Jesus? Look again at Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 because there really you have got the answer to your question. 10 and verse 38. Even Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. It was at his baptism that Jesus was anointed. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 says, By the eternal Spirit he offered himself up to God without spot or blemish. Now, my dear friend, that is often explained that it was by the Spirit Jesus actually went to the cross. That is true. But have you ever noticed that he offered himself up to God without spot or blemish? In other words, the whole of those three years he had gone through by the eternal spirit, keeping himself without spot or blemish, so that he might in the end, by the same spirit, offer himself up to God as a sacrifice for sin. If Christ needed to know the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, how much more we? It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12 that we have been given the Holy Spirit that we might know the things that have been freely given to us of God. No one can know in experience the fullness of Christ. No one can know in experience the resources of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why the word is, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled with the Spirit. How else can we experience all that is ours in Christ? 
How else know practically our union with Christ? How can we do greater works than he did, may I ask, if he did it by the Holy Spirit? We must never forget that overcoming is linked forever with the Holy Spirit. When God spoke to Zechariah, he said one word, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. There's no other way to overcome him. No other way to the throne. Isn't it interesting that how Jesus spoke to the church and he said, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh. And then he said, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what I am saying. Isn't it interesting? After all, the vision we have is that Jesus was in the midst of those seven golden lamps and he was speaking. But he said, he that hath him here, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. I think this matter of the Holy Spirit is one of the most important matters. There's excess. There is that which is artificial. There is that which is superficial. But believe me, dear friend, there is that which is absolutely real. Woe betide any child of God who doesn't know the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, his indwelling, his empowering, being born of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the anointing of the, and the gifts of the Spirit. You will never be transformed into the same image from glory to glory unless it is by the Lord, the Spirit. The last point I just make is this, that if we have said it was union with the Father, a life laid down, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the fourth thing is perfected through sufferings. It is amazing to consider that Christ, though sinless, was yet made perfect through suffering. Now think, he was sinless, yet the Bible says he was made perfect through suffering. The word means complete, full, ended. Do you understand? We sometimes translate it full-grown. It can be translated in different ways, this Greek word. But the idea is not just moral per perfection, as we often think, but really something complete, fully rounded, full-grown. The way of Christ to the Father's throne was through suffering. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 puts it quite simply. Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now think for a moment. This is Jesus. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The character of his service, of his kingship, was made full, was completed, was filled out 
by suffering, by learning obedience, that is, by learning the, the, the full meaning and nature of obedience through the things which he suffered. Now, my dear child of God, you will never, ever learn the full meaning and nature of obedience except through the things which you suffer. The kingship of Christ is not based on his pedigree, although he has a pedigree, nor even on his divinely given status or title. He was born king of the Jews. It is based on the royalty of his character. In his humiliation, at his trial, when divested of all the mystique of royalty, that kind of distance that royalty keep, that the regalia and the pomp, the kind of difference between royalty and ordinary mortals. When Jesus was divested of all that, stripped naked, so that he looked just like any other man, beaten, disfigured, derided, spat upon, then we see his real nature. When the kind of dignity that most men would lose at such a time had gone, all the things that make up that kind of dignity, then we see in Christ a majesty, an authority, a royalty, a nobility, which is not based upon outward trappings and position, but on inward character. Such a one must reign. He makes the crown of thorns the most glorious crown ever worn in the history of this world. And he makes that reed the most powerful scepter ever wielded in human history. With God, kingship cannot be just a matter of status, of title and pedigree, as if God is out for a kind of heavenly bureaucracy. It must be also a matter of character and experience. If this is so even of Christ, how much more of us? Just because we're born again, just because we're saved by the grace of God, it does not mean that we have the ability to reign. The universe in the ages to come will be in a sorry mess if it's left to some Christians. If they've got to supervise it, or to have dominion over it, administer it, my goodness, what a mess it's going to be. No, we can only reign if we're prepared for suffering and discipline. That's why it says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. That's why we have the if in so many of these verses in connection with the kingdom, with kingship. Thus, too, our routine life and circumstances become the school in which God trains us for kingship. The home, the kitchen sink, the office, the factory bench, the trials and troubles that come to all human beings and some who are unsaved take them better than some who are saved. And the inexplicable 
trials given to those marked out for kingship all become the means for our being perfected. I wish I could give you a whole lot of scriptures on this matter of perfection. It's used so much in the New Testament that you might come to perfect man, that he might present every one of you perfect, and so and so on and so forth. But we've just got to learn the real nature and meaning of obedience by the things we suffer. It is not merely negative, but positive. An understanding, a compassion, a sensitivity comes this way only. Someone who's known discipline, someone who's known suffering, someone who's gone through the mill has a deep fund of compassion and understanding in their administering of the will of God. You cannot get that by an idealistic, theoretical training. It has to come through learning obedience by the things which we suffer. So really, learning obedience is the key to being perfected, being full-grown, being completed. The Father brought the Son to the throne this way. Now, with incredible and amazing grace, he works on the poor material that we all are. If we will only let him, he will take us through discipline, through suffering, to his throne, there to reign forever. The Lion of Judah is also, at the same time, the little lamb as it had been slain in the midst of the throne. That is God's idea and concept of kingship and authority. The lion, his majestic power and authority. But the lion is the little lamb as it had been slain. We can... None of us sit down in the Lamb's throne if we have not become like the Lamb. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we just commit ourselves to Thee and we commit, Lord, for what has been said this evening on this hot evening. Watch over it, Lord, that what has been said out from Thyself will not be lost to any of us. Thou knowest, Lord, there's a need in my life and in every one of our lives to overcome as Thou didst overcome. Lord, we pray, Work this into us all and work it out in us. And so we commit ourselves to thee with thanksgiving and praise in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.